how do you read the Bible? Well, different people read the Bible differently, and that's actually the point. So how do we listen to all the voices that come from the Bible, and then those voices that talk about the Bible as they have read it? We need a lot of those different voices, including women's voices. Andrea Weiss teaches, teaches Hebrew Bible. Uh, she is a Reformed Jew, and she'll be telling us something about metaphor and different kinds of biblical literature on good God. Stay tuned. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the program today, Andrea Weiss, Rabbi Andrea Weiss, who uh, is both provost and professor of Hebrew Bible at Hebrew Union College and Jewish Institute and in Religion in New York City. Welcome back. Thank you. Really glad to have you. Now, in our first conversation together, we talked about this, your uh, book, American Values, Religious Voices, uh, this 100 letters in the first 100 days that you and some uh, other scholars, 99 other scholars around the country, uh, sent to our new administration uh, in uh, the first part of 2017, and how that book was used and the values of it and all of that. So that was a good excuse to get you on Good God. <laughs> but while we've Happy got you, here. while yeah. we've got you, I, I think it's uh, also a, a wonderful opportunity to talk uh, a, a little more about your uh, your work, your faith, what you do, and uh, and and see the connection um, with, with your particular religious tradition and uh, your teaching uh, in, in uh, at Hebrew Union. So. To begin with, let's situate where you fall in the Jewish continuum. Uh, you are a woman rabbi, which for some of our viewers and listeners will say, oh, there is such a thing, right? Uh, because you're part of a branch of Judaism, Reform Judaism, uh, not reformed, but reform Judaism. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yes, right. Uh, it's not finished. It's it's still going on, right? Uh, and uh, and it's a it, it's a really American brand, if you will, in a, in a sense. Even though there's reformed Jews around the world, there is a there is a sense that uh, this is kind of a, a a strong American tradition, isn't it? Well, it does have its its roots in, in Germany right. uh, much earlier, but uh, certainly, so the Hebrew Union College was founded in 1875 in Cincinnati, mm -hmm. and really with the, the mission of training uh, training Jewish clergy yes. for, for this American context. Yes. So in that way, certainly HUC is very much a, an American creation, and we've been, uh, mm -hmm. and it's been training rabbis to serve Jewish communities throughout the, the country, throughout the world since then. But it has taken on a, a kind of um, a understanding of Judaism as it confronts the modern world, right? And so uh, the Jewish identity and its relationship with non-Jews and with culture and those sorts of things, it, uh, it, it really, from the beginning, was really a, a, a way of kind of, in, in a sense, reimagining in its generation how Jews, Jews might think about new discoveries, science, and, uh, and, and as well as cultural uh, movements and survival questions, too. 
So in my work as a Bible scholar, one of the classes that I teach uh, to our second year rabbinic students on the New York campus has been a class in the, the biblical prophets. Yes. And as part of that class, a big theme that I emphasize in studying the Bible is to see um, various evolution, uh, innovations that take place within the Bible. Yes. So for example, in the Ten Commandments, the, the most yes. you know core biblical text, where God says, uh, where we find this notion of transgenerational punishment, that yes. God is going to punish. From generation to generation, to yes. third and fourth generation. Before, exactly right. that. And, uh, you know, the, 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 that the children will be punished for the sins of, of the, the parents. But then we study that, but then I show how the prophet Ezekiel, mm -hmm. so first of all, the prophet Jeremiah says, in one day that will no longer be the case. And then right. the prophet Ezekiel declares that no longer will people say the, that parents eat sour grapes and the, and the children's, children's teeth, teeth are, are set, set on, on edge. edge. Yes. Right. So that is saying that that very boldly and, and there yes. the speaker is God. They're saying that um, that is overturning that notion of transgenerational punishment. So that's a great example where we see an evolution of a core biblical idea within the very Bible itself. Yes. Changing in response to different circumstances. Yes. Here you have the Israelites are in exile. Yes. And if you say and that was viewed as being punishment for either their sins or mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. their, their ancestors' sins. And so if you believe, how are you going to ever get out from under that? Yes, yes. So the prophets then, have an, they present an innovative idea, which is that, that that idea no longer exists and that instead what, what Ezekiel teaches that instead God says, I'm going to either reward or punish every individual right. according to their own behavior. Well, and then you have, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, so I was just going to say that, that's, I, I, and I show other examples as well, because that's really the, the reformed Jewish spirit, right? That, right. That, that Judaism is ever evolving. It always has been in response to changing circumstances, different times and different places, that the core values of our, of our religion remain the same, that the text, but, but that, um, that we are adapting to different times and different places while maintaining what is really essential to what it means to be a Jew. Well, and so what it means to be a Jew, let's go right there, uh, as a matter of fact, because you also have uh, the, the tension within the Hebrew Bible on uh, a matter like, for example, uh, the, the Torah, which wants to have identity markers that are pretty strict, and then along comes the Book of Ruth. And now we have a Moabite, and we have uh, this sort of welcoming of the stranger and the convert, and the the question of, you know, how do we put all of this together too, right? So there's a separateness that's important, but there's also the hospitality and the welcome, and uh, and here we are today with the question of how do Jews survive intermarriage, right? And so uh, because in America at least that's been you know, difficult on the Jewish community when the default um, strength of, of the Christian community is, is involved. And so this is a constant narrative, isn't it? A constant interaction. Well, it's a constant sense of how do we define ourselves right. in the midst of the other people with, with, with whom we're living. Yes. So if you think about something like kashrut or keeping kosher, you know, what, what, what can you eat or not eat? Yes. Right? And what, what does it mean to, and to what extent does that define you as a people separate from other peoples, if in um, other religious practices in ancient Israel? Certain things that were, were adapted and common in other ancient, among other ancient peoples, like sacrifice, certain right. practices were okay. 
yes. were seen as, and others were not allowed. We're, and so what, it's, there's that constant tension of um, what defines us as a people. Right. And how are we distinct from the other peoples with whom we are living? And, and, and social location has a big part of that because you see there's, you know, it's one thing when you're in the land and it's another thing when you're in exile, right? And, it, and uh, you know, you're, when you're in the land, there's, there, there's a way, you, this is your homeland, this is how we define ourselves as a people, and, and we have a temple and we have a, a place to worship and to gather, and then suddenly you find yourself now in exile and there you are in Babylon and here's a Jeremiah saying, you know, seek the welfare of the city in which you find yourself because its welfare will be yours and this sort of thing. And so, well, how do you put these two things together, right? But again, it's, it's, it's always a matter of this living conversation with the community and with God, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. One of my favorite texts these days is from Isaiah 56, so a, yeah. a post-exilic text or an exilic text. And there, the prophet emphasizes the importance of keeping Shabbat, keeping yes. the Sabbath. Why? Because once you no longer have a temple, Right. then how do you define yourself? So Shabbat in exilic and post-exilic te text becomes the really def critical defining feature of what it means to be a Jew at that time. Right. And also in that text, what I love about it is that's the text where we read where God says, my house of prayer will be a house of prayer for all peoples. Yes. And uh, Deuteronomy Isaiah is very much responding with this very wide embrace of those who um, those who are non-Israelites but want are, are clinging to mm -hmm. the Israelite God, want to be part of the Israelite people yes. with this wide and welcoming embrace. And that is that is really in um, very directly in opposition to the kind of voices that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah who are trying to define the Israelite community by saying who's out. You can't intermarriage, you can't. So, right. so those, those debates, and that's why this passage now just comes alive to me in such an important way. We were having these same conversations today. Right? Exactly. Who can come in, who can come out, how, how widely are we gonna open up our gates? And this is and exactly what's happening in? in the Christian community as well. So my house will be a house of prayer is something Jesus cites also uh, in his confrontation in the temple with those who had who were exploiting those who uh, were coming and were unable to buy and sell uh, before they came and they had were charged extortionary rates and all that sort of thing, right? And he's, he, you know, the emphasis is really on inclusion here and, and access and opportunity. And we make a big deal of him, you know, you know criticizing the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the merchants, so to speak. But really what's at the heart of this is that. Uh, but Christianity struggles with this very much as well. Uh, what are the identity markers that keep you who you are? Yeah. Uh, and what do you do with people who are unlike you? Uh, the welcome of the stranger, the hospitality is supposed to be a really high value for us, but sometimes our sense of being threatened by the other uh, really makes us draw back, doesn't it? Right, And, the and other we struggle with that in the scripture too. Yeah, and the other question of that text, another text is, is who are we gonna let in? Yes, yes. Right, so you have uh, the ger, the stranger. Yes. Who is a non-Israelite, but living amongst the the, right. the, um, the Israelites. And we have uh, Leviticus 19, which says, not only do you not mistreat the stranger, but right. you've gotta make this, the stranger, the ger, like a citizen. And then it goes even fur even farther to say, love the stranger. Love the stranger, and right. That comes right after love your, exactly. your, your fellow, love your neighbor. So that's 
you know, that's a big, that's right. a wide embrace. Well, and it's also probably something about religious um, maturity, isn't it? That, you know, we can only start maybe at a certain place, but it's never enough, is it, until the stranger is your friend, until the stranger is your sister or brother, until you understand that we actually all share the divine image and have a, a right to flourish together uh, and live together in certain ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, hard work to do. Yes. Um, but this is actually, uh, you know, this is actually an, an, an interesting thing. I, I don't know why people think religion is supposed to be easy. Uh, it's, it, I, I had someone say to me one time uh, about, um, we were having a conversation about a particularly challenging religious issue, and I, I said, it's you know, really not all that clear. There are different ways of, of viewing this. And this person said to me, you know, I don't really want to believe in a God that wouldn't make it really plain to me. It's, it has to be clear. It has to be plain. And so the assumption is that that's the way religion is supposed to be. If there's one thing in the world that's easy, it's supposed to be religion. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, right? Well, and for me, that's, that is what, uh, as a Bible scholar, what draws me and what, what, why I dedicated my life to this text because of its complexity, right. because of its artistry, the idea that there are so many different voices. I mean, in the Bible is an anthology that combines so many different perspectives, different voices, different mm -hmm. kinds of literature. So mm -hmm. you have a book like Proverbs that is telling us the world in the way that we would like to believe it mm -hmm. exists. You're yes. If you're good, you'll be rewarded. If you're, right. if you're evil, you'll be punished. And then we have a book like, uh, like Job. Job, right. Right, and other Psalms and sure. Ecclesiastes, which Habakkuk. says that yep. says right. you know the world doesn't work that way. I, exactly, and it's yeah. it's complicated, and that's in the teaching that I do both at the Hebrew Union College and as I have a chance to teach at uh, synagogues and communities uh, uh, around the country. That that is to really let people in and, and share that complexity, both in the in the um, the artistry of the Bible and to help people become better readers of the biblical text right. and to appreciate the complexity and the, the nuance of it um, and, and, and to show how these ancient texts, where they come, mm -hmm. they're so old and from such a faraway land and time right. and place, and the fact that they can speak with such relevance, still, yes. still t t like that to There's me is the, the inspiration. Power. There's yeah, the inspiration that's, that's of the spirit. Well, and you know, a lot of people like to say, um, the Bible says, and to them that, that's the end of the conversation. But really it's the Bible says, now let's get started. You know, yeah. because that's the starting point, but it's not the ending point, right? It's an invitation for us to participate in this same conversa conversation today. Right, and we can, and as a Bible scholar, I stay in the, you know, I try to, in teaching my uh, students, I, I try to get them to think about what does the text say? Yes. What does it mean? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to me? Nice. And often people want to get to the, what does it mean to me? But to, to really start with what is it actually saying? Yes. And what is it meaning? And it's, what does it mean in its ancient Near Eastern context? But then to get to what does it mean to us today? But whereas I tend to, to exist in the, in the world of trying to figure out what is the plain meaning of the biblical text, right, right. then we've got centuries in, a, in the Jewish tradition of biblical commentaries that right. are, that, that uh, if, the biblical text in itself is often ambiguous, but then you've got these multi-vocal yes. uh, tradition where you have all these different voices over time or in the same time in different places where people are saying it means X, it means Y, 
adapting, responding to at different times and places what the text means. So Okay, so I think when we come back from the break, we need to keep pursuing that since you've contributed to this new conversation in commentary, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Great, thank you. Okay. Thank you for continuing to tune in to Good God. This program is available, as many of you already know, in various formats. You can take it as a podcast that uh, is delivered to all the places you would go, whether Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Play, uh, and, and you can hear it weekly and you can subscribe to it. A new episode drops every Thursday morning, and so we invite you to do that and subscribe. Uh, you can also find the video format in various places on the Facebook page where we invite you to like Good God. Uh, you can also find it on YouTube and on VocalNow, V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com, VocalNow. Uh, so these are various places you can go. I'd also want to tell you that you can go to the website. That's, that's www.goodgodproject.com goodgodproject.com, and there you can find an archive of all of our previous episodes. If you like what you hear on any given week, you might actually uh, like to have a transcript of the conversation, and if you go to the website, goodgodproject.com, you can find a transcript there also, uh, where you can cut and paste and uh, use uh, what's been said in that conversation. Uh, so we'd invite you to find various ways to continue to tune in and to enjoy these conversations. One special thing I want to say is thank you to the friends of this program who have contributed financially to make it possible for us to do this without inviting you to have to give. Uh, we're grateful for the support of friends of this program, and I hope that you will be too. Please tell your friends about Good God and continue to tune in. Thanks for being part of it. We're back with Andrea Weiss, uh, and we've been talking about her work as a professor of Hebrew Bible and how we teach the Bible, uh, both from what it says to what it means to what it means to me, and uh, how important these voices are not only in the biblical text, but then across the ages, and uh, that we, we have to take account to the, the continuity of the community engaging with these texts across time as well. Uh, but the truth is, a lot of those commentators have been men for ages and ages, and uh, uh, there's, th there's maybe a, a, a loss in that. We know there's a loss in that, uh, and so we, we have a new commentary that you participated in called the Torah, a woman's commentary, and uh, it's uh, bringing female voices to the interpretive ta uh, text, uh, task of, of Torah. Uh, how did that get started? So the commentary got started in 1992 with cantor Sarah Sager, who's a cantor at Fairmount Temple in Anche uh, Chesed Fairmount Temple in the Cleveland area. And she was asked to teach about the Torah portion about Abraham, right. where Abraham, the Akedah, where Abraham, the binding and near sacrifice of Isaac. Right. And she asked a question, which in 1992 was a more novel question, which is, where is Sarah when Abraham takes his son right. and the wood and Where are you going, Abraham? Goes up the mountain. Yeah, uh -huh. 
And so she started doing some research and she found that there were women and men in a variety of different contexts who were beginning to ask those kinds of questions and were beginning to uncover more about women in the biblical text, women in ancient Israel, what their lived lives were like. But she realized there was no accessible way to access that information. Information. So she had the idea, which she presented to this uh, small regional gathering of, of Jewish women uh, in 1992, and that, that was the idea that we should create a feminist Torah commentary. Yes. So she was invited by the Women of Reformed Judaism to a year later to their national convention. She gave a big address, and at the end, she, uh, she made a very passionate, articulate argument of why we needed a, a women's Torah commentary. And she charged that group, which is a group of lay leaders. This is not a group of rabbis, not a group of um, Bible scholars, but a group mm -hmm. of engaged Jewish women mm -hmm. to create a Torah commentary. And it took 15 years, but that's what it did. The, the Women of Reformed Judaism raised $1.5 million to fund the project. They uh, first engaged my teacher and now colleague, Dr. Tamar Skenazi at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Los Angeles as the editor. I later joined as the associate editor. And um, so it's a comment. It's a commentary on all 54 Torah portions that brings over 100 Jewish women who've written original commentary on the on the Torah. And, there, and we wanted the commentary. Original vision was that it would be multivocal. Yes. And so that there would be different types of commentary on any given Torah portion. And we saw that both as definitively feminist the idea of being multivocal, but also definitively Jewish. So if you've ever seen um, a medieval Jewish Bible, which has the Hebrew text, an Aramaic translation, and commentary all around the page, or page of Talmud, which is about one opinion, then another, then another. This multivocal engagement in the text is really definitively to Jewish too. So for every given Torah portion, we have different types of commentary and different commentators that are adding their voices to the, um, to the text as well. So it, it's important to get a female perspective then, or many female perspectives to balance all of that because the way in which women participate in uh, religious life uh, is both common and, and different uh, in the community. Uh, we were just at an event where uh, David Stern, our friend Rabbi David Stern was talking uh, before we shared a meal and he was talking about how uh, we can each of us eat exactly the same food, but based upon our body chemistry, based upon who we are uniquely, it actually produces different glucose levels, it actually produces, it, it may nourish us in whatever way, but differently, each of us differently. And it seems to be that that's part of the point, isn't it? That, that, that we, we need to have all these different voices so that we can hear and be nurtured spiritually by uh, as, as full, uh, a meal as we can get. Maybe. Yeah, I think that that's that's a good analogy, and it was a beautiful teaching. Um, and what we really tried to do was to create a, a, a Torah commentary for contemporary Jewish women, and that wasn't mm -hmm. that was we um, sort of the the target audience, but it, we wanted it to be received by a much wider audience, men and women. Yeah, Jews I mean, and men need to hear this too. Well, and and what it does is to bring um, women scholars. It's largely women scholars, some mm -hmm. clergy. Um, a wider, and we also have poets and other writers that are responding more creatively to the biblical text. But how do, how does being how does women's scholarship, women's experience, shape mm -hmm. the way that we read the text? And the mm -hmm. commentary is also very contemporary in terms of bringing the latest scholarship mm 
Mm -hmm. um, the book came, was published, uh, was finished in 2007, published in 2008, so we're over 10 years uh, old and still remains very uh, vital resource in a lot of congregations. But it's really, um, so it's bringing the latest biblical scholarship, but looking at it, um, what can we uncover when we have women who are the ones who are interpreting the text, right. asking different questions, looking at things in a different way, not encumbered by layers of commentary by men, but yes. looking at it to say, what does the text actually say? Not, not, what does, what, not what do we wish the text says mm -hmm. about women and women's experience, but let's look honestly and openly at what it's actually saying to, to try to understand it. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, so there's that work, there's this work that you have done on American values and religious voices. These are two um, contributions you've made in publishing. But on an ongoing basis when you teach Hebrew Bible, one of the th interests that you have also is in the use of metaphor in uh, the biblical text. Now, different kinds of language uh, is also important as we read a text and understanding that you, you know, if, if, if someone says you are a rose, we don't literally mean that you're a flower, right? So there, there's a new layer of meaning immediately what are some examples of metaphor in the Bible uh, that uh, open up new areas of understanding to us? Well, thanks for, for asking that question. So my area of research as a, as a doctoral student uh, was in the area of metaphor and biblical prose. I focused on the Samuel narrative. And because I teach the prophets, as that's been a regular uh, class that I've taught for, uh, for 18 years, I became very interested in biblical poetry and in, particularly in metaphors for God. So um, before I came up with the idea for American Values Religious Voices, I was pretty far along on a, on a, pretty, on a broad study of metaphors for God in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And um, what I am calling God in the biblical imagination, the mechanics and theology of metaphor and looking both on a very uh, linguistic level mm -hmm. of how syntactically metaphors for God operate. Um, and then what is the larger meaning? And I'm categorizing metaf <coughs> metaphors for God in terms of human and non-human. So okay. a human metaphor would be uh, God as king, God as shepherd. Yes. Um, just to, to name a few, uh, God as potter. And then mm. non-human metaphors, um, one of my favorite, my students will tell you, is the image uh, from Hosea 14 <coughs> of God being like dew, yes. providing the very subtle uh, nourishment that allows in that case, Israel personified as a plant to thrive, mm -hmm. that allows us to thrive. Um, so, um, and then many, many others, God as rock is one of the most of prominent, course. especially sure. in the Psalms, the Psalms yeah. God, is, God is a rock. So <coughs> trying to understand uh, what those metaphors are saying about God, I'm particularly interested in the way that the Bible often combines multiple metaphors for God, not only in the same passage, but even within the same verse, side by side, we'll put um, different verses. So an example from Deuteronomy Isaiah is where God is pictured as a man of war and a woman in labor. Ah, right, right. Side by side. Right, yes. And both of which have to do with <coughs> both images of power and strength and sort of the, the, the loud voice and the, the power that God will come to bring the Israelites uh, back from exile. Right. So how metaphors interact and, and how they actually work. So I'll share with you, I think, one of the, the, the insights of that research and really doing the close syntactic look, um, research to look at how metaphors actually appear in the Bible. And one thing that I found is one, well, probably the most famous metaphor that people will know is uh, God is my shepherd mm -hmm. from Psalm 23. So in the Hebrew, it's Adonai Ro'i, which is the noun Ro'e, and then a suffix at the end, the first person suffix. 
And so one thing that my research has shown is how often metaphors for God have some kind of a, a possessive marker. Hmm. Which is to my say- My shepherd. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's actually, it's more rare to have a, a verse like God is king, sort yes. of just in the absolute, God is a particular metaphor, but much more often, metaphors for God are situational hmm. and are personal. Interesting. So God is fulfilling a particular metaphoric role for a particular in- individual okay. or entity All in right. response to a particular situation. All right. Um, so that's the kind of research that, that I'm interested in. What do, how do, how do those, what do those metaphors for God tell us about the ways that the ancient Israelites experienced the divine? And right. then which of those metaphors still speak to us today? And how might we be inspired by the metaphoric process? Right. So the biblical authors took everything they knew about the world around them, mm-hmm. uh, concrete objects, nature, um, places, mm-hmm. weather, people, relationships, and they used everything that they knew to help them get to the no- to the unknown, which was God. And, you know, it, I, I'm of, often struck with how we use that today. Uh, so in Christian tradition, uh, in Christian worship, we often have hymns and spiritual songs that draw upon biblical metaphors, and yet our world is no longer structured with um, where, where we live, well, some live in monarchy still, but even those tend not to be like they were in biblical times, right? So God is my king. We might sing that over and over again, but what does it mean to live in a country which is democratic and we have no king, right? What <clears throat> What about the language of shepherd when, you know, we maybe we work for a hedge fund and, you know, how do we think about new metaphors uh, in our way of thinking about God without jettisoning those biblical metaphors? How do we connect them, right? Right, so part of that I think is understanding <coughs> this metaphoric process, mm-hmm. that what the ancient Israelites were doing were taking everything they knew in the world around them to get from the unknown, is they were trying to ask, answer these big questions of who is God? Mm-hmm. How does God operate in the world? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a human being? What does right. it mean to be a human being in relationship to this deity? What does yes. it mean to be part of the people of Israel in, re, in a covenantal relationship with, the, with this God? And answering all of those questions, they turn to metaphor. And there's no one reigning metaphor. The uh. Bible, there's such diversity throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there's this sense that we need all of those metaphors, that yes. no one metaphor can carry the weight of saying everything that we need to say yes. about who God is and how God operates in the world. So to say that God is father, or as some biblical texts say, God is mother. Mm-hmm. So for example, when the Israelites are in exile in Babylon, mm-hmm. Deuter Isaiah says, where the Israelites feel that God has forgotten or abandoned them. Mm-hmm. And the prophet says, you know, would a, would a mother yes. abandon her own child? Or just, right. as, just as a child is comforted mm-hmm. by his mother, so I will comfort you. Yes. Right, because if you want to convey the sense mm-hmm. that no matter what, no matter what's happened in the past, mm-hmm you've sinned, you've been punished, you're in exile. Right. I still love you. Mm-hmm. We're still in this committed relationship and yes. I'm still gonna bring you back and I'm gonna bring you back to the land. So that's why that, in that particular case, the metaphor of the mother is is um, is so powerful. Yes. But at other times we need other metaphors. So um, mm-hmm. to kind of have that metaphoric freedom. Yes. And to, um, and also then to translate the process. So both to think about which of the biblical metaphors still speak to us today. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. can we adapt them in a way to find them meaningful? Right. 
Um, but also, what is it that you know? What are the metaphors in your world? What is it, what is it the relationships, the objects, the entities that you understand? Mm -hmm. It might be something with technology. Mm -hmm. You know, I often do this with, um, with kids, for example. <coughs> I think it's a great exercise with kids. What, ha what metaphors could you create to try to explain how you are thinking about struggling with God? The, the Lord is my operating system. Yes. The Lord, the Lord <laughs> is my The Lord is my smartphone, you know, yes. or something. I, I mean, it, it, obviously, it's, it, it's more helpful to think through maybe how it works or doesn't work both right. because we're certainly not going to change our, our prayers and, our, and whatnot. Yes. But, but uh, involving ourselves in that process is part of the spiritual discipline of using imagination like the prophets did, yeah. right? And so uh, it's a beautiful way to build community. Well, my goodness, we could go on and on <laughs> with this. And that's actually the point, isn't it, Andrea, that we do go on and on with this uh, beyond a conversation like this, but in our faith life. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about these conversations is we have two different religious traditions, but side by side, we're learning from each other, listening. Thank you for all you're doing for well, all of us. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this conversation. Absolutely. Thank God you. bless you. Okay. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God. Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons.